1: the total lack of stability and the misery of exile for all royals. I mean, if you're royal and then you don't actually have any money or around, what is the point of you? And you can't just extinguish that entitlement. I think so. OK, well, we'll just become a plumber. You know, I'm a prince today. I'll be a plumber tomorrow. I'll just get on with it. It doesn't work like that when you've got this inbuilt genetic entitlement. You know, as Philip reminded people when they were being really rude to him in Buckingham Palace. You know, actually, my grandmother was born in Windsor Castle.
0: Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today I welcome back a good friend of the show, Dr Tessa Dunlop, to talk about her wonderful new book, Elizabeth and Philip, the story of young love, marriage and monarchy. Now I've never been hugely interested in the modern royal family, but since the Queen's death and learning about her early life, and in particular Philip's, their story speaks to a turbulent time in European history. This is very much being captured in Tessa's book. The Philip that so many of us know is that of the irascible Duke of Edinburgh, a curmudgeonly royal who would make off-coloured jokes and questionable driving decisions. But his upbringing and youth made him a much more complicated and interesting character than that presented in the newspapers. He was born in Corfu, as a member of the Greek royal family, and his four sisters married senior members of German aristocracy, and two of those seem to have been Nazi party members. Now this pod is going out in the middle of the recent Netflix documentary, and so inevitably Tessa and I discuss contemporary events. I've watched, or started to watch, volume one of The Harry and Meghan Show, so you don't have to, and my advice is don't. But what I would say is that reading Tessa's book and our discussion today has made me realise that the background of the royal family is far more complex than the celebrity-dominated news stories of today. And it's one of the reasons why it made my Books of the Year list. I've put a link in the show notes for Aspects of History's Books of the Year and, of course, Tessa's, And you can find her on the Twitter. Now, following on from last week, which of you picked up on the editing mishap? Well, that's been rectified. But I want to reassure you that those responsible have been fired. And so I can promise you it will never happen again. I have to own up to a misquote as well in my recent chat with Lawrence Friedman. Amma in Romania got in touch to pick me up on the line, Lita c'est moi, which is, was of course said by Louis XIV, the Sun King, not Napoleon. Thank you, Amma, for pointing that out. Funnily enough, it's something Napoleon might have said, and in the movie Waterloo, starring the great Rod Steiger as the Corsicanoga, he does say a line that sounds close, I am France, and France is me. But that's Hollywood, not history, and I'm correcting the record. Coming up, I've got Ian McGregor on Stalingrad, Peter Hughes discusses history today, I've got a top 10 historical movies with a Hollywood director, slight exaggeration, he's certainly a director, and I'm working on top 10 historical events of Christmas, so do subscribe. I'm offering a discount to annual subscriptions of the EMAG down from nine ninety nine to only £5 for the year. The code is HISTORY50% and I've put that in the show notes as well. Until then, I'll hand you over to me and Tessa Dunlop, talking Elizabeth and Philip. Tessa Dunlop, the author of Elizabeth and Philip. Welcome back. You're, a bit, you're becoming um, a bit of a, a permanent presence here on the podcast, but this is your new book. I mean, you're churning them out. This is the second.
1: No, no, Ollie, stop, stop. What? I mean, you know, I rely on you as a friend and also as the esteemed editor of Aspects of History Magazine to always get all accreditations correct, but you never refer to a writer as churning them out. <laughs> that <laughs> makes it sound like garbage. <laughs> the, no,
0: this,
1: this was a Second book published
0: look. in, in uh, what, two years running?
1: Dan Jones will tell you that you have to write a book a year to make a a living. That's the the reality. And this time, it was the first time I had the honor of actually employing someone because I was close to the wind time wise. And um, I employed an extremely good postdoctorate individual, uh, Dr. Jack Clift, who hadn't got his fellowship that he wanted, so had a month. And he dived into the newspaper archive with me at the British Library. There are many writers who never admit to ever getting any research help. But I'm so proud that I was able to engage somebody meaningfully um, in a library and pay them honestly that I'm telling everyone. (laughs) And um, also he he was brilliant. He was really good. I mean, you know, 120 pages of meticulously recorded Uh, information from mainly the British tabloid press in the 1940s and 50s because I discovered Ollie between you and me a lot of royal books biographers are slapped out generally by journalists or certainly non-historians and there is a bit of a cut and paste thing that goes on often they have a sort of friend who's a royal or an insider who gives them a bit of an exclusive and then it's all stitched together which is fine but it doesn't really add to our knowledge and I think some tropes get repeated one and I won't call out the individual although I do call him out in my book um, quite a, quite an established writer and, and certainly his biography on the Queen sold well saying that you know really they weren't bothered by the press at all in the, in the 40s and 50s it was anodyne you know the, the way in which the press covered the roles and that I discovered in relation to Elizabeth and Philip which is the book we're talking about By the way, much better than Giles Brandress, the Queen. I'm no crony. (laughs) Um, No, I don't pretend that the Queen and Philip were my friends, Um, but um, I can tell you they were given a bit of a a rough ride in, in the late 40s. Britain didn't want Little Britain post Second World War, having been exposed to the ravages of two world wars. We didn't want a foreign prince marrying into our British royal family. It's so interesting how quickly that changed. Between the 19th century, when you have global Britain, imperial Britain, um, Victoria's progeny splashed all over Europe, suddenly in two world wars, you have those progeny fighting each other, if not literally on the battlefield, as ancient kings or medieval kings did. uh, Certainly their countries fighting each other. And that very much changes the definition of what monarchy is. And it makes Philip suspiciously beautiful and suspiciously poor attached to the suspicious greek uh monarchy are uh, undesirable
0: and so the tabloids then uh, from the second world war they become a little, little bit more parochial they're not they're not so keen on um on foreigners and the fi-
1: tabloids don't, a little bit more parochial the problem is, i mean if you think of the sort of beaverbrook press express yeah. conglomerate they sold like two expressed back then 2.5 million circulation. This was a big deal. And of course, the Daily Mail was the first 1 million circulation at the beginning of the 20th century. So they're they're always quite thumpy, very patriotic, hugely royal, these papers. Is that parochial? I think it's more patriotic, I suppose, in terms Uh, of where Britain globally used to be positioned, it's parochial. But
0: yeah, I guess they weren't really moving from a position. Um, they all they always had that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I, I
1: think they've remained consistent. There's, there's a there is a wonderful consistency about the position yeah. of the Express and the Mail. It hasn't really shifted. In um, so far as you know, Brits are the best. They're unapologetic about that, and I think have been since the get go, since the beginning of the 20th century. And it's that relationship. I was really. I don't know if you picked up on that. Did you read the book?
0: Yes. Of course, I always read the books when I when I interview people. I did, I did, and actually, I I, um, I found I love the Queen. Everyone loves the Queen. She's you know wonderful and all that. Um, but I found Philip a lot more of an interesting character. Um, and his upbringing is 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 very interesting. And and I was going to ask you because you mentioned his sort of poverty.
1: Yeah You're of course say now. Yeah know. well
0: you know I've never in all honesty I've never really been that interested in in you know the um private lives of the royal family Yeah um they've just always been there and I haven't really been I'm not particularly um uh, a royalist uh, it's sort of there in the background and with the queen's death though I've got more, more interested in it so I st- I started reading it after she died um because that's when it came out and um I just found his background really fascinating his mother i find fascinating his you know his sisters who marry rather questionable individuals
1: well are um, they question i mean they are questionable but arguably the, the main reason well they're, they're nazis reasons, yeah well i know uh, well indeed no, you, you millions with nazis, of germans know. They, they married german men yeah you know th- that's the truth uh, uh, to, to upper class top draw german men who are uh, uh incorporated uh into the nazi regime on a couple of them uh so i think they were nazi
0: party party members weren't they
1: yeah there was a couple and and the um uh, uh, cecile's husband hess uh his he at his funeral because they were wiped out in a plane crash in 1937 goring was at the funeral so there you have British royalty hanging out at a funeral. I mean, you know, this is 1937. You know, we haven't yet got our backs to the war. We're not at war. But um, the divisions were very apparent even then that this was a challenging period. Philip is interesting in that respect and that he has. I also found Mike Batten a fascinating character because you have this the schizophrenia within Philip's family, which, of course, is a direct result of. Europe becoming so divided in the first half of the 20th century means that, um, on the one hand, his four sisters, one dying of course, but the remaining three, all married to men who fight for the fatherland, who fight for Germany. But then you have Mountbatten, who's done everything he can, and his family have done everything they can to come angli- anglicise the Battenbergs, German effectively, and Philip, although he's attached to the Greek throne he's sick the night of the greek throne it's german blood coursing through his veins that actually disturbs our political class and our courtiers and mountbatten
0: was his uncle wasn't he
1: and mountbatten was his uncle so he was uh, attached to the renamed milford havens and um because the battenberg his the, the the original Battenberg, who was Admiral in the First World War, had had to step down because of his German associations, so they gone undergone this whole rebranding, and there was no way Mountbatten was going to let it happen again, that one of his own, kith and kin, were going to be sidelined because of their questionable um, genetics, or blood, or nationality. I mean, how does one talk about these things now? It's kind of bizarre, isn't it, just how much has changed. But, um, and that meant that he did everything he could to get Philip naturalized. Again, this is fascinating, isn't it? You have to be a naturalized Brit. Um, I mean, imagine if we'd said to Meghan Markle, you know, give up your American passport, become a Brit before you marry Harry, which is basically what happened to Philip. He was homogenized into the great British system, including his faith. Of course, he was an Orthodox Greek. So it's all bells and smells and chanting and suddenly straight jacketed into the anglican church poor bugger. How, how
0: how seriously did he take the greek orthodox religion?
1: Well of course the um I think he wore it fairly lightly don't forget he was educated predominantly certainly the, the latter part of his education but even indeed in his prep school was in england. So um and then he goes he has a brief stint in germany and then he comes across to Gordonston, and he spends a lot of his holidays itinerary either with his cousin Marina, uh, who's the Duchess of Kent, she's married to the Duke of Kent, uh, or with his uncle MacBann, always in a sort of itinerant camping status. But in both families, his own, where he's the only son, the longed-for son after four daughters, who comes late, arrives six or seven years after his oldest, old, youngest sister, but so he's got the revered male status in that family, and he also has a revered male status because Mountbatten never had a do- and because Mountbatten never had a son. So there is, and I think that explains, one biographer refers to it as his penis or Prince Philip's penis or this idea that he has this very um, self-aware and heightened idea of his own masculine prowess. He's quite pleased with himself, Philip, in a conventional male way. And I think that's partially explained by his very precious status as this only boy, both in the Mountbatten family and in his own family.
0: So he wasn't an in- insecure individual, despite his... Oh, no. Um...
1: In no way was he insecure. I found a fascinating book um, written in the 1980s. It's out of print now, but there's a copy in the British Library. And I really did read that like as it was a page turner. And it was written by Eileen Parker, the wife of Mike Parker, who was um, a lieutenant alongside Philip in World War Two. They became very good friends. And, and he was, of course, later, of course, inculcated in the scandal where he has an affair and therefore he has to step down as the private secretary. But they remained close from World War Two right through to that scandal in 57 and, uh, and in contact thereafter. But um, Parker, I was always fascinated by Eileen's story, too. She's a slightly bosomy Scot. Um, eileen parker and she her father went to the same school that i went to in scotland strathallon anyway so it's a very posh school
0: isn't
1: it not very but it trains up Scot- scottish rugby players most of the scotland's uh, first 15 go to Strathallam now they didn't in my day but they do now anyway the fagasons i'm good friends with the fagasons uncle it's a very small pool scotland anyway eileen marries mike parker best friends of philip in world war ii so sees and gets to know philip before he becomes prince and, and and associated with Elizabeth. And she said he, he was very aware of his special status and used to sign himself, always Prince Philip of Greece. There was no doubting that. And, and that was the other thing that's, I think you'll agree, Ollie, special about my book. As you're not gonna say, I'm just putting those words into your mouth, my friend. It is special. It is special that, is special that my, my old women that I've worked with in all my other books gave me wonderful insights into either personally into uh, Prince Philip and and Elizabeth, the stories associated with them in the war, or alternatively um, insights into what it was like to to date and get married at that time. And Pamela, who was a Bletchley girl, who um, I always adored, she always told me stories of Prince Philip of Greece because she was at Bletchley Park, in fact, was the boss of Osler Benning, who was Prince Philip's girlfriend, very famously. And if you look at pictures of Osler and, and Philip, she was on a par with him aesthetically they were extraordinarily good looking in their youth I mean he he was like a Hans Anderson fairy tale character Philip he was very very good looking and had a thatch of blonde hair and a really good figure and was hugely self-possessed and a Greek prince you know who wouldn't want to have a quick snog and Oslo Benning certainly did I don't know I did a, I did a whole chapter on, <laughs> on sort of sex before marriage or not as the case may be I think very posh debutante girls were of course incredibly paranoid about getting pregnant because that would have totally totally ruined their knocked them down the pecking order as it were so I'm not sure he'd have probably got his end away with dear Osler but they certainly were very attached to each other and and and, and for both I think the relationship was impactful um, and, and, and and significant even later on in their lives you know he was her the godfather to one of her children and um he, he was the first man she fell in love with
0: but he was quite ambitious, so that was never really going to be a prospect for marriage, is it? He's no. looking for someone a, a little bit more senior.
1: He's the Prince of Greece. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing about Philip. Now, do we judge him for that? If I think, as a woman, you know... Well, for me, Greece
0: is above uh, Britain in the uh, important state, stakes. So,
1: yes, but to me, not. he
0: married down.
1: Yeah, but not the Greek monarch, particularly. that had a pretty rough... Roughshod ride, and there was yes, they were flirting with have, fascism yes. before the war, and they were constantly being knocked off their throats. Oh, and it yeah, yeah. Actually, be the royal family uh, that you'd be most keenly associated with. Um, and he was biffed away. I mean, he left Corfu a year, which he, where he was born, his family were in exile a year after his birth. I mean, the British papers actually celebrated the fact that he couldn't speak Greek. That was how ridiculous that's where we're parochial like like, phew it's okay he's not really greek he doesn't even speak greek yeah back of the net one for england there boys (laughs) you know and famously although he lived in paris after they were exiled it was said when the edinburgh's as as philip and elizabeth were known when they got married it was said that um you know that elizabeth spoke better french than philip when they went on their tour of paris so it, it languages weren't philip's strength which probably endeared him in some way to the british public um, but no, he definitely lined up Elizabeth. Do we judge him for that? I mean, famously women, we, we, we're always renowned, aren't we? And have been until recently when we've been allowed to earn money of our own, you know, for choosing not men, not necessarily for, for the size of their pecker, but for the size of their pay pack. You know, that has historically been the burden of women. If you don't marry a rich husband, you're going to be poor for life, love. So Philip, if he didn't marry into, into a family that had a realm, he was gonna be forever an, an, an exile prince, irrespective of whether he progressed in the Navy. So I take my hat off him for having foresight uh, and for conveniently having a third cousin who was buxom and uh, dutifully attractive, I think is how we could sum up Elizabeth. And I think we know that that he was trying to secure his future or future proofing, if you like, quite early in the war because he was sending letters to Elizabeth, I think as early as 1941. Certainly his cousin, Alexandra, the ex-Queen of Yugoslavia was like, why are you writing to Elizabeth? She's like a baby, she's like 14. I think it must've been 1940, therefore. And he was like, oh, you know, she's my cousin. Oh, yeah, really, Philip? How many other third cousins are you writing to? Are, are you just securing Christmas at Windsor, which I, I'm, I'm sure um, he, he was trying to do, but you wouldn't go through a 14-year-old to secure your place at the Windsor Christmas table, would you? You'd, you'd, go, through our, you'd go through cousin Marina or, or uncle Mountbatten. Anyway, the point is that it was being... He's playing a long
0: game of, there, isn't he? Yeah,
1: he's playing a long game yeah and he could afford to as a young man of about 20 all he had to do really was survive the war and be allowed to fight for Britain which he was allowed to from 1940 joins the navy he then gets fully engaged in the war after Greece of course are implicated and the Germans take over Greece and and he has a a pretty respectful always mentioned in dispatches he fights in the Pacific and in the Mediterranean I don't know you know if it didn't Swing it for some in Britain, his war service, uh, I think it helped. And certainly latterly, when the great generation emerged, this idea of the generation who fought for freedom, Philip was actually front and centre. We saw that when he died. This was a man, you know, under stripes.
0: Well, he gave up um, what could have been quite a distinguished career, couldn't
1: he? Oh, you know, I think too it? much is made of that. Ah, that now that, up, I want to ask if that was true. true. No, I'm, glad,
0: I'm glad you've... Uh, so, right, so that's slightly exaggerated, is it?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, OK, can you name um, an admiral of the fleet, a head of the Navy? Can you name one?
0: Well, I can name one from the late 18th century. M-
1: my point is the age. Yeah, but not, not, not post-World
0: War II, I quite right. struggle but, to. But,
1: but, but a rhetorical question, Ollie, don't worry, you don't right. need to sink into a panic of how many... Um, Uh, from the navy can I name? It was a rhetorical question. The point is, the agency accorded to the Duke of Edinburgh once he had married Elizabeth was far greater than he would have ever achieved in the navy. So was the sacrifice really that big? I'm not saying the path was hugely easy. I'm not saying Mm. there weren't spikes in the ground. They were all over the shop, but just that it wasn't a sacrifice. You know, a woman all women virtually in the 40s and 50s who are giving up anything they've acquired to go and have babies and par with some uh, post-traumatically distressed man you know for the next 50 years now that's a sacrifice but don't get me started on Philip's sacrifice because I don't see it as one
0: okay fair enough but Um, I do think
1: we can unpick and let's make this a bit more contemporary and less dodgy than some of your podcasts um I think we can
0: (laughs) the history podcast
1: I'm ribbing you I listen avidly. Do I listened to the one who said yeah he said um 99% of my book is accurate or is this, who is um the guy who said 90, 99% of my book is correct. Come on.
0: that's Mark Second Urban. War book. Mark Urban.
1: Mark Urban. I love yes. that comment cuz it's absolutely true. Don't read your audio book guys and girls if you're if you're a writer or do do if you want to go through a really thorough corrective process because if you really want to know how you write you have to read your audiobook and if you really want to spot the typos when it's too late and your book's gone to print again I beseech you read your audiobook what I can't understand about publishers is why don't they get their act together so that the audiobook is read before the book's gone to print I mean it seems like a no-brainer doesn't it anyway that's just a does. does the writing community um, in the meantime, let's go back to, to Philip and Elizabeth. So yeah, he, he was lining his nest, Philip, but I don't blame him for that. You know, he was no. looking after his family himself. And I think I think in many respects there was there was love on, on both sides, not just for Elizabeth. We know she was cutting pictures of him out in her scrapbook when she was 13, 14, and from there on in she had her eye um, absolutely steadfastly pinned to Philip. At what and point she did he she wanted? At what point
0: did he sort of start asking her out for dinner and, and things like that? It was you...
1: kind of challenging. These things are always challenging. Have you not watched the Harry and Meghan documentary? There isn't the freedom accorded. To I have, unfortunately. No. You have, haven't you? Yeah. And, and the, well, I of gave research. up
0: after midway through. I did make it to episode three, but I gave up.
1: Did you? Well done. Gosh, I think that's further than I've got. But don't tell any of the programmes upon which or in which <laughs> I've been commentating. Um, but the point is, I mean, it the, the, they weren't as free There, there is the compromise the rub of royalty they are in their gilded cage you have to be careful you and as and as Stanley Baldwin had pointed out during the abdication crisis it's not just any old marriage who the the, the heir to the throne or indeed the king marries uh, or the queen as, as Elizabeth has come is a big deal it is a matter of state and um and therefore Philip so there's questions asked in 1941 Philip um, is intermittently on the scene he goes for Christmas I write about that it's quite well covered and he writes a letter simple. after is it
0: after Christmas he he writes a letter back saying I'm, I'm very opinionated he writes to his mm-hmm. uh, to the queen Mum mother she wasn't the queen yeah. mother then she was the queen but says Elizabeth oh I was very was opinionated which oh, yeah, is quite funny
1: she she didn't like him the the queen mother the queen mother's family i mean that's the other thing that i was really riveted by in this book the sort of mafiosa of scottish aristocracy god i mean they're a buggering lot i tell you i know because i grew up in scotland my dad was a factor on a large estate run by a laird so i know all too well about the sort of clannishness of scottish aristocrats and that was where in 1946 philip goes this is clocked by the press incidentally Up he goes to Balmoral. And that is, thankfully the Queen Mother slips in a burn a stream, by the way, if you're English, that is, and twists her ankle so she's kind of out of play, which means Philip suddenly is relieved from this a little pot of poison, which is how I think of the Queen Mother, because I think she was really a pretty formidable figure wrapped in a saccharine package and hadn't was very doubtful about, about Philip. And uh, the, the king was is softer. He's worried about Elizabeth being too young. He's aware, and I was very aware, having written The Army Girls and knowing that Elizabeth had such a restricted war locked up in Windsor Castle, Having this very brief period in service when she couldn 't even stay in the barracks and hang out with the prostitutes and lesbians, you know she 'd had this really cloistered time, and so uh, his her father was rightly worried that you know Philip the Beal mendel and, and and all sorts of courtiers were saying you know he 's vulgar he's german and and one actually writes you know and he 's unlikely to be faithful so the were the were serious concerns, but by that summer of forty six it's been mooted. And the king, of course, has to give his seal of approval if the heir to the throne is under 25. And he kind of signs it off, but it's not public. So he sort of says to Elizabeth and Philip, yeah, look, okay, but slowly, slowly. And then promptly announces this a first ever tour to South Africa or Southern Africa, as it was then, um, without Philip, of course, and without any announcement in the press. In fact, there's another denial. There's about seven denials in the press. There's another denial when the family, that us for the firm go to South Africa, that there's any chance of a marriage, which is hurtful for Elizabeth. She doesn't really, this is her first time out of Britain. She doesn't leave Britain until she's 20 um, to go, because of the war, of course, to go on this tour. and, And she doesn't enjoy it as she should have done because she, she wants to sew things up, get a man in the bag. He's a good-looking bloke. You don't want him swanning around on his own for too long, for crying out loud. By this stage, of course, the war's over. He's back, I think he's in Wiltshire somewhere, but it's in the book, you know, in a great coat, you know, having a boring time on shore. Philip liked action. He was a classic sort of public school boy in that way. It pretended he wasn't vain. It's all about being tough, but actually was super vain. He used to go jogging in three jerseys to keep his weight down, avoided carbohydrates in later life to make sure that his waist remained the same size as it had been when he was 19. And he did funnily enough, I know someone who met him in his early 90s and it was a very frosty day at some weird point to point, you know, a classic upper class thing to do in January or wherever it was. And they said they were really struck that everyone else was sort of covered up in woolly hats and and big puffers, but not Philip. He was sort of standing there in his shirt sleeves, you know, toughing the weather out. That was his own version of vanity. You know, he was a player, was our Philip.
0: One one woman in his life that I was interested in was the relationship with his mother. Um, who was Princess Alice of Greece and she she had quite quite an interesting war didn't she in that she was in the convent but but had done this sort of hugely heroic um, act. yeah
1: and and that was again the schizophrenia of Philip's family where on the one side you have a whole bunch of them fighting for the Germans and on the other side you got the mum who's totally confused as to why Philip's fighting in the British Navy (laughs) you in the greek one darling and i'm now in a two-bedroom flat in athens i do like to drop by <laughs> you know she's a bit sort of, she makes an extraordinary recovery she's in two sanatoriums sanatoriums for her mental health in the late 20s 30s that relationship breaks up incidentally obviously with her husband who then is sort of a sybarite with never quite enough money on the riviera semi-depressed with a string of glamorous women one of whom i think Took proper care of him before he dies, quite young in his 60s, the end of the war, towards the end of the war. So Philip, and I think Philip felt that as a loss, his father. People always imagined, oh, he had this, you know, terrible childhood and no real parents. But until his until his dying day, Philip said, No, I love my parents, you know, I love my father. Didn't really see very much of him. He wasn't a conventional father. But it was again that sort of, you know, early 20th century upper class detachment. it didn't mean that there wasn't love it just wasn't hugely demonstrable or conventional but I think certainly it probably impacted on Philip in some ways and definitely underlined the appeal of Elizabeth if you've got this you know this very orthodox mother talking of you know the significance of Philip's um, faith Um, a a committed woman a, a charitable woman someone who did save Jews and deeply care and and a father who had been a significant military player in, in Greece until he was forced into exile. I think, um, but, but this, the, the total lack of stability and the misery of exile for all royals. I mean, if you're royal and then you don't actually have any money or around, what is the point of you? And you can't just extinguish that entitlement I think so, okay, well, we'll just become a plumber. You know, I'm a prince today, I'll be a plumber tomorrow, I'll just get on with it. It doesn't work like that when you've got this inbuilt genetic entitlement. You know, as Philip reminded people when they were being really rude to him in Buckingham Palace, you know, actually my grandmother was born in Windsor Castle, up yours type thing. He wouldn't have said up yours, by the way, But but he was treated in a very disparaging fashion and the press that ran polls should Elizabeth marry Philip and that rattled the royal family, so this idea that now that the royal family are rattled by bad press, that they were rattled in the 1990s, that Harry and Meghan saga was rattling them. They were rattled in the, the 40s and 50s, in fact, Philip made them more aware, he added the Sunday pictorial and I think the mirror to the list of newspapers that uh, were read at Buckingham Palace, he felt they needed to broaden their reach
0: i was I was just reading about that as well, actually, as I was skimming over the book again. He took in the the skimming, mirror
1: ollie skimming yeah, well, I've read
0: book. it, and then i you know uh, <laughs> I'm <ribbing because> you <laughs> I had to reschedule this uh, this call and uh, yeah i was was reading it, and he had to take take the mirror, uh, didn't he so he's a mirror yeah, reader. He did I didn't he didn't well, try the mirror reader I think the last time we spoke, we discussed that it was probably the telegraph. I think for the cricket and you, you think. yeah
1: for the sport definitely love the sport the thing is um the mirror was particularly um skeptical about Philip they actually ran a picture on their wedding day 70 years ago last month incidentally their wedding they ran a picture of Philip in Greek costume on the wedding day just to underline this bloke's Johnny Foreigner you know that this little heft of Xenophobia. lest Meghan Markle think she's special in the first. This has been going on for decades, so if it's I not entirely about race. I think it's it's, it's more about. a lovely about picture. Foreigners. I think he looks wonderful in that picture. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't put it on the front page to celebrate. No, they didn't. No, they they're not all about um, Greek uh, culture, peasant culture. That really wasn't what they were into. But I think in terms of. The broader picture did Elizabeth, I think Elizabeth married well in many respects. She married the man she loved. And I think we've seen recently how very difficult that is. I mean, Harry's just made the point in his Netflix docu-soap, hasn't he? That actually, uh, certainly individuals in his family have previously married into a mold. Where Elizabeth's very lucky is that she genuinely fancies, nay loves, a man who is from the right mold. Once Britain get their head around, he's Greek you know, but we get rid of the Greek tag anyway, this perfidious Balkan tag. Um, Then he's kind of cut out for the job because he believes in monarchy. And again, let's go to Meghan. I mean, there she is mocking the idea of curtsying the Queen. She simply doesn't believe in hereditary monarchy. She's American. She's a Black American. Why why would we expect her to? But Philip was from a royal family, an exiled royal family. He had doubled down reasons to believe in monarchy.
0: Well, I yeah. think he, I, 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 well, I don't think the Queen was particularly put out by that. Do you think that the Queen was inf- affected by the whole Harry and Meghan thing? Because um, <laughs> she's seen, but she, she's seen abdication, the war, uh, her father dying very young. Um, there have been a lot important he, things that have happened than the, someone who's seventh or eighth in the line of the throne now.
1: In, indeed, I don't think uh, that she will have worried about it long term rocking the monarchy. I, I think she knew that you just have to weather these storms because she'd experienced enough of them. But I think she would have been sad about the breakdown of interfamily relations. I think any grandmother would. I mean, that's just on a human level and we know that it's kind of sad, isn't it? It's a bit like the Duke of Windsor stranging himself. And I think Elizabeth did what she could to make sure we didn't have a replica of the Duke of Windsor, where there was he was totally persona non grata. I mean, Charles has you know, said, oh, we love Harry and Meghan. There's not been any of that kind of severance. Of course, the, the stakes aren't as high as you said, Harry was was never heir to the throne and was very unlikely that it was ever going to be.
0: The cut might come now, though, with this uh, Netflix show, might, mightn't it?
1: I don't think so. I don't think so. I think it would make... I think it would make uh, monarchy, British monarchy, look mealy-mouthed. I think they're a state institution. They've got a huge amount of backing, a lot of goodwill. I think it makes them look more broad-shouldered and generous if they just weather it out. They understand this is a couple in pain. Both had a lot of pain in their childhood. Both had stuff they needed to work through. They also need to understand that to run Montecito is very expensive. So if you're going to action on Mexit, if you're not going to let them have this kind of quasi-status, then they are going to have to sell in stories. And the the biggest story in town is the Kardashians with the crown on which mm. is what harry and megan looked like so uh, let, let's see but but you know philip and elizabeth are a reminder of this was the last generation where not only did they a hundred percent believe in marriage and i don't believe that that marriage has to be monogamous but it's the institution of marriage is again like monarchy a broad-shouldered institution it can incorporate all sorts of wrongdoing even infidelity especially from that class and generation but it's about enduring, it's about the front foot, it's about the facade in many respects. Monarchy, and then over marriage, and more important than marriage, and one of the reasons why marriage is important is for, in the service of monarchy. And, and both Elizabeth and Philip believe in marriage and they believe, because they believe ultimately in monarchy and they know it helps preserve the monarchy. And I have worked with a lot of their generation, that runs through all of them. It's like the center of a sticker rock, a belief in monarchy and a belief in marriage in a way that our generation were more flexible. Are we more intolerant? We're certainly more transitory. There's less permanence. We don't believe in monarchy and marriage in the same way. And, and Charles's generation don't. Half of them got divorced, including Charles. He's a different kind of king. And and actually, it doesn't matter how much future-proofing we did during the death of the queen. I say this in the book, you know, I I think, I can't remember what I say in a book and what I say on a TV channel, but anyway, the point is that Charles is overseeing a much more divided Britain. When when the queen comes to the throne with Philip behind her, there's no question that there might be an independent Scotland or an independent Northern Ireland. The the polling ratings for Charles in Scotland and Wales are less than 50% often. We don't talk about that in England, but it's true. The real success of monarchy, interestingly, is in England.
0: Well, in Northern Ireland recently, a poll has just come out that shows um, the support for the union is much higher than was originally anticipated. So I for think the at union least or in, for
1: the king. Uh,
0: it's not. No, it wasn't. It was more for the union rather than. Right. I'm
1: more. talking about the, actually Charles's ratings in Wales and Scotland, the monarchy's ratings. Right. And not as high as we imagine them to be. Interesting. And yet, interestingly, the SNP have made it very clear they'd keep the monarchy.
0: But, uh, and what is, as a a whole, How how, what's the sort of support for monarchy now? Because I would have thought in the wake of the Queen's death, it's It's it's
1: about, it's just over 50%, those who are positive or very positive, which leaves a a lot of people... Oh, I would have thought it'd um... be
0: higher. That's not not as high as I thought it was.
1: It's not, but remember, the coverage of... um, the Queen's death, told half the narrative because we were remembering her, we were respecting her, we were revering her. It was reverential, the coverage. By definition, we didn't tap into the ambivalent or anti 45%.
0: So most people would agree that the Queen had a very successful reign, but is it successful if only just over half the country is in support? I mean, you know, if it was a successful reign, should it it be much higher?
1: in my book, I, I argue that her real success is the, the brand of family monarchy that Philip and Elizabeth were, were the pin-ups for. You know, they were no longer politically powerful. They were, you, this was no, this was the post-war era. And here they are as this family monarchy, both in Britain, peddled as such, and, and also in the Commonwealth on their big tour and so forth in, in the early 50s. Now you could argue well family monarchy came crashing down didn't it what was the margaret divorces and then three of the siblings three of the children divorce so is she successful her and philip were successful was it possible for that model of marriage and that idea that inflexible idea of of, of marriage and monarchy to, to continue into this more flexible era she as an individual was hugely successful and we know that and became so impressive because she was so old ditto philip it was certainly a fondness for philip I and mean, there was a bit of a pushback when he died that there was too much coverage and stuff but i think most of us thought okay he's a bit loud but we're fond of him and he served in a way that is of their generation do we you know th- th- no longer is our consort ever gonna un- oh, and you can't say they won't have fought in a world war but there isn't those unifying forms great britain isn't such a unifying brand you didn't we, we didn't have the baptism of fire that was the second world war it's much it's a much harder gig for charles and going forward for william and also the british establishment whether it's the press the press the fourth estate or our monarchy is under attack in a way that people didn't envisage netflix for instance this whole hoo-ha with harry and Meghan, then they're, they're not under the auspices of ofcom
0: yeah, not they're not bound, but yeah, any right. inaccuracies, they don't have to correct, yeah. do they?
1: Yeah, and, it, and it, the, the problem with, is with, I think, with the monarchy, and this is one of the other things that I was very struck by writing the book, was the relationship between the conservative press and monarchy, and that one depends on the other, and that means that I think sometimes the monarchy hasn't been sufficiently scrutinised in the right way. Why don't they employ more ethnic minority people in, say, Buckingham Palace, in a, in a city that's nearly half-ethnic minority? Why not? give me the answer for that i think the queen genuinely believes in the commonwealth well i think the commonwealth
0: gives it gives them a great opportunity
1: to do that doesn't it which i don't think they've used properly Mm. and yet and yet philip and elizabeth were huge champions but remember the problem with monarchs who live for a very long time is your ceo is quite old-fashioned the whole system was creaking because she was 96 you know new broom and then the king's now so old where's the new broom gonna come from he's 74. There's problems, but I think this high point, this extraordinary high point, and it was a, it, it, in, in many respects, and Philip resented this the soap opera story, the love story, very good looking Elizabeth and Philip, peaches and cream, super young, wonderful coronation, a, a feminine figure supported by her very handsome war hero husband. We're not going to see the like of that again. That's, I think, where the outpouring came in September. And writing about them was, it was like time travel. It was hard to believe this spanned one life
0: it's it, it they are very touching yes
1: you're just trying to finish the podcast though, well no because
0: i i know we're we're limited on time
1: we have you enjoyed this podcast ollie
0: of course is it more
1: feminine is it taking you outside of your comfort zone
0: well i spoke to Leander Dallar last week which is very good all about henrietta maria there's plenty of female in, uh, input into this podcast do I, um, did I sound a little bit defensive there?
1: You did, yeah. You sounded a bit like a member of the Royal Household saying, no racists here, moving on, moving along. Yes. <laughs> Are you a relation of Lady Susie Hussey? <laughs> um, so, <laughs> or is that too close to the bone? Um, anyway. No relation
0: whatsoever.
1: Thank you for talking to me and um, thank you for coming yeah.
0: on uh and and the book Elizabeth and Philip fantastic book um really it interesting. was
1: actually one of your editorial picks you might want to tell you it
0: was it was one of my books of the year I found the story on um uh, the, sto- the in particular Philip I found Philip uh, quite an interesting character uh his upbringing it's the Greek thing as well always gets me but um uh,
1: yeah.
0: an interesting individual
1: just quickly they never as a couple once she was coronated ever visited Greece is that about the Parthenon marbles who knows they did visit Greece when they were the Edinburgh's and he was serving in Malta because when I was um, covering the Queen and I was in Sky in September this Greek girl said oh I don't like the Queen and I said oh why not suddenly got all defensive you know it's like I can slag off the Queen because she's mine but you can't <laughs> and I said oh why not and um, they said she never visited Greece and I said I think you'll find actually she did I think it was the late 1940s or 1950. Well done. Visited and, and she was totally gone. So I actually Googled it. She was like, oh, my goodness, you actually know what you're talking about. goes <laughs> so back to what I say about royal experts, in inverted commas. Anyway, on that note, uh, all my love, thank you very much for, according the book, some uh, attention.
0: Uh, a little
1: bit overshadowed by Giles Brandreth, who professes to be a friend of Philip and Elizabeth. But I think one can't always write the most honest biography if one is a friend.
0: I agree. We should uh, read um, historians' books.
1: Indeed. On that note, happy Christmas.
0: As I mentioned at the start, do have a look at aspects of history's books of the year. Link in the show notes, including, of course, Tessa's. We've got plenty of authors in there, including many friends of the show giving their recommendations. More great history is coming up, including bonus specials and episodes to tide you over until the new year. In January, for the anniversary, we'll be talking about the trial and execution of Charles I. In the meantime, thank you and good night.